Some time ago in one of the many conversations I have in the lobby after the services, somebody asked me this interesting question. He said, how come almost every intelligent person who has seriously grappled with the scriptures seems to come to the conclusion that the scriptures cannot be trusted as authoritative, at least not in the sense that most evangelical lay people do? That's a good question, because there certainly are a large number of people who come to that conclusion. Not only is that the prevalent mood outside, the disturbing thing is that it is quite widespread within the church as Jesus Christ as well. I would like to respond at two levels to that question. The first one is simply a biography of a man, Robert Dick Wilson. When Robert Dick Wilson was 25 years old in Germany, he decided to dedicate the rest of his life to the study of the Old Testament scriptures. This is how he describes his decision at the age of 25. He said, judging from my ancestors, I think I will live to be 70. That gives me 45 years. I am going to divide that into three 15-year periods. The first 15 years I will devote to the study not only of Hebrew, but of every language in the world that illuminates Hebrew. Then in the second 15 years of that period, I will use my knowledge of the languages to study the Bible in the original Hebrew, the Old Testament. And then I will use the last 15 years of my life to put into writing the things that I have learned. Robert Dick Wilson finished the program exactly on schedule. In that lifetime, he mastered 45 languages and dialects. He studied this Holy Old Testament and he came to the conclusion that in the Old Testament we have an absolutely uh, reliable and authoritative record of the history of God's people. That's good enough for me. And to Wilson's name, I can add the name of many others who perhaps are not as distinguished dramatically, but men and women who can hold their own in any debate on the inspiration and the authority of the Old and the New Testament. I think of people like Kenneth Cancer, John Montgomery, uh, Norman Geisler, Walter Kaiser, Benjamin Warfield, Charlie Hodge, and on and on. But what about those of us who will never become scholars in Hebrew and Greek. What basis do you and I have for believing in the authority of the scriptures and its reliability? And what answer are we going to give to some honest people who pose at least a popular version of that same question that I was asked? And it usually has four parts to it, or four aspects of this question of the reliability or the trustworthiness of the scriptures. And each builds on the other. The first one is simply this. My, the Bible has been changed so many times by so many people down through the ages. Look at all the versions that we have. How can we believe that? The second question is, after all it was written um, by men. Look at all the errors and contradictions that there are. The third question is, even if you can explain all the errors to me, it was still written by men. So why should I believe that it's the word of God? And fourthly, even if some of it was written as the word of God, the Bible was put together by fallible men. In that process they had to determine what things to leave out and what things to include. How do we know that some things that ought to have been included haven't been left out? And things that ought to have been left out have not been included? Those are the four forms of the question. And tonight all we will have time to is to take a look at the first two and we'll pick up the third and the fourth next week. 
uh, whatever overheads are used today, you'll have enough time to copy them. And for last week's overhead, copies are available uh, in the foyer for you to pick up. Let's begin with the first issue. The Bible has been changed through the centuries. How do we answer that question? The first thing we have to keep in mind is the distinction between the original documents of the Bible and the copies of the manuscripts that are with us today. The Old Testament was written originally in Hebrew and parts of it in Aramaic, like Daniel. And the New Testament was written in Greek. These were copied and then distributed for use. Now, today we do not have the originals of any portion of the Bible. Like, we do not have the actual piece of parchment or whatever on which Paul wrote Romans. We do not have the actual scroll on which Jeremiah wrote his prophecy, for example. We only have copies. So, we might say, well then, how can we ever find out what was originally written? Let me use a simple illustration to drive home the two key principles that are used to reconstruct originals from only copies, and copies that have mistakes. Suppose I were to put here on the overhead a paragraph of English prose, and then I would ask you in this auditorium to copy that down, to make a copy of it. But I would ask you to deliberately make one or two mistakes. Misspell a word. Leave out a particular word. Make one or two mistakes in the copying process. When you've done that, let's say I throw away this overhead. Now I've lost the original, and all I have are about three or four hundred copies, and every one of them has one or two mistakes in it. So I don't have the original, and I only have mistaken copies. But I can reconstruct the original with a very, very high degree of certainty, maybe even 100% certainty. Because all I will do is to ask you people, what's the first word? Now, some of you may have chosen to misspell the very first word or change the very first word. But it's highly unlikely that the majority of you would have chosen the first word. So I'll simply ask, what is the first word? And take the answer that most of you give and ignore the ones who say it was something else. And then repeating that process word by word by word by word, we can reconstruct the whole original here, and that original will be accurate, probably 100%, and definitely much, much more accurate than the errant copy. So there's a very simple example of how we can use manuscripts that have errors in them to reproduce an original. Now, I would be in real trouble if I had only one copy, isn't it? Because there'd be only one copy with an error, and there's no way of reconstructing the original. But because I have three or four hundred, I'm able to do it. That's the sort of thing we find with the New Testament documents. We do not have the original Greek manuscripts, but we have 5,500 copies of the Greek manuscripts and nearly 18,000 copies of early translations of the Greek, mostly into Latin. And we can take these 23,000 odd manuscripts and by putting them together we can reconstruct the original with a high degree of accuracy, much, much greater than the accuracy of any one of the copies. That's one way in which we recover the original. There's a second factor that's important in recovering the original. Let's suppose you took your copies away of my example. And then somebody in First Alliance Church took your copies and made some copies from there. And then Bayview Glen made a few more copies. And then one of them had a visitor from, over from, this, uh, from England. And they made a few copies and took it back over to England. And this process continued for two or three hundred years. Boy, there'd be many, many copies of the one paragraph that I wrote here. And now over the centuries, some of these copies would be lost, some would remain. And people suddenly get a hold of a few copies. Now let's say you get a hold of a copy that was made in Rexdale Alliance Church on February the 14th, 1988. But you also got a hold of a copy that was made in England in, in whatever, in the year 2000. 
which copy is likely to be more accurate? Which one is likely to have more errors? Obviously, the one that was made right here is likely to be one that's most accurate because it was made within a few minutes of the original, whereas the one that was written several years later is likely to have a few more mistakes. That introduces the second key element in the evaluating the accuracy of a copy. How long a period of time has elapsed from the time the original was written to the time the earliest copy is available? And when we look at it that way, we find that for the New Testament documents, the maximum time that elapsed between the time the documents were originally written and the oldest copies that we have is about 250 years. There are two particular complete copies of the New Testament called the Codex Vaticanus and the Codex Sinaiticus, which are dated around 350 AD. So about 250 years after the events. Now, portions of the New Testament are available, copies that were made within 50 or 75 years, particularly John's Gospel. Now, you might say to me, boy, 250 years is a lot of time. That doesn't sound like an impressive time span. Not until you begin to ask the same kind of questions about many of the secular historical documents that we have of literature that was contemporary with the New Testament. Literature that any professor in any history, any professor of history in any secular university will automatically assume is valid. For example, you take the writings of Julius Caesar, his description of the Gaelic Wars. There are only about 10 copies of the original available compared to the 23,000 of the New Testament. Also, the oldest copy of Caesar's Gaelic Wars was written 1,000 years after the original. In fact, this is true of all of the documents of antiquity. Homer's Odyssey and the Iliad, for example. The writings of the Jewish uh, Roman historian Tacitus. All of these have a minimum time span of between 1,000 and 1,400 years between the oldest copy and the original. And yet we believe them to be accurate. And they are, to a large extent. But the New Testament is just embarrassingly more so reliable because of the number of documents that we have and because of the relatively small time gap between the time the original documents were written and the oldest copies that are available to us. Now, I haven't said anything about the Old Testament, you will notice in all of this. Because the situation there is different in one way and yet uniquely so. For the Old Testament, we do not have an abundant number of copies. Now, you might say, well, that means the Old Testament isn't as reliable as the New Testament. Actually, it works the opposite way for the Old. You see, because the Old Testament was written earlier, the material on which the, it was written and the copies were made were perishable. They didn't get to the enduring parchments till later on. And so, in order not to allow the word of God to be corrupted by, because it was written on perishable documents, they made many copies. But as soon as a new copy was made, the old one was either relegated, hidden away, or destroyed, so that no one would read a distorted copy of the word of God, because the material had withered away. And in order to make sure that the copying process was very, very carefully done, they had a very elaborate system of rules. The scribes were chosen carefully for this task. They had to dress in a certain way. They had to use a certain kind of ink. They had to use only certain kinds of material. They were not allowed to copy one letter from memory. Every single letter had, they had to stop, look at the original and rewrite it. And they had a rule that when they were writing the name of Jehovah, even if a king called them, they wouldn't look up until they finished that letter. 
And then they developed an incredible system of measures to show that they didn't even miss a letter. Do you know they counted in the original document from which they were copying how many times each letter of the alphabet appeared in that and then they would count the same thing in the copy to make sure they were the same. If they weren't, they did the whole thing again. Then they counted the middle letter of the Pentateuch, the first five books. Then they counted the middle letter of the entire Old Testament and did it in the original and did it in the copy and they better be the same letter in the same place or else they start all over again. That's how much care they took. And in 1947, the world got a remarkable gift to show to us the incredible accuracy of the copying process of the Old Testament. See, until 1947, the oldest document that we had of the Old Testament was called the Masoretic Text, which was completed in 900 AD. So, over a thousand years after the Old Testament was compiled in its final form. Then in 1947, a young Bedouin shepherd boy nobody knows his name, and he made the greatest, one of the greatest archaeological finds, was tossing stones into a cave while he was watching goats. And the sound of one of the stones was a little bit different. He went in there and he found several tall jars, sealed jars, which contained documents that were about 100 BC in date. Well, the archaeologists zeroed in upon that situation. When they opened them out, they found what are now known as the Dead Sea Scrolls, which contained amongst them every part of the Old Testament except the book of Esther and three complete copies of the scroll of Isaiah. The importance of this find is the fact that in one find we jumped from 900 AD to 100 BC. A thousand year time span between those two documents. There ought to be all kinds of errors if people were sloppy. And when they compared them, they found that the errors that they were all there were all tiny little things, changes in the last letter of a few words here and there and not one single doctrinal effect on the whole passage. Over a thousand year period, the copying process had been so strict. Now about this time, our imaginary friend with whom we are dialogue is saying, okay, okay, I accept, I accept we can reconstruct the originals, even though we don't have them with a high degree of accuracy. But what are we going to do about all the errors in the Bible? Just because you have the originals doesn't mean you explain away all the errors. What are we going to do about them? Several things I'd like to suggest to you. First of all, whenever somebody brings up the question of an error in the Bible, I found it very useful to hand them a Bible and say, okay, choose one. Nine times out of ten, the person has never read the Bible. They've usually heard some scientist or some humanist make these kind of remarks. Now, the, the purpose is not to uh, make a fool of the person, but to help them to see that they need to have first-hand knowledge before they can challenge the scriptures. But you will get some people who are honest and who are sincere, who have heard of it, and who will turn to an apparent error in the Bible. And then we have to take the question seriously, because you see, we do need to give an answer for that. We need to struggle with it, because the implications are serious. If there is a real contradiction or error in the Bible, then we are forced to one of two conclusions. Either this book is the word of God, but God doesn't tell the truth, or God tells the truth, but this book isn't the word of God. You, can't, you cannot have a truthful God, the word of God, and then have errors and contradictions in it. But this is only true of real contradictions. What do I mean by a real contradiction? Real contradiction has to fall into one of two categories. Either an internal contra uh, contradiction. For example, if one gospel said Jesus was crucified in Jerusalem, and another gospel said Jesus was crucified in Galilee. I mean, there's no way you can uh, resolve those. That would be an example of a real internal contradiction, which would cause problems. 
or you can have an external contradiction with known facts so that if a part of the bible said such and such a king lived at such and such a time and reigned for so many years and then you you unearth definite archaeological evidence that says that such and such a king didn't reign in such and such a place and such and such a time that would be a legitimate contradiction as well how do we go about responding to many of the apparent contradictions in the bible that in fact do not fall into either of these categories i could take two approaches to the sermon at this point one of them is to go through every single contradiction apparent in the bible i don't have the time first of all and secondly there's an excellent book in our library called archi encyclopedia of bible difficulties written by a man called gleason arch professor at old, of old testament at trinity so any time you run into a particular difficulty i would recommend that you get a hold of this book and and look and they give you some good working level answers i want to take a somewhat different approach this evening some that is manageable and deals more with principles than a lot of boring details i would like to share with you seven principles that you can keep in mind whenever you come up when someone points out a so called apparent contradiction in the bible and i will illustrate each of these principles by certain types popular contradictions that are usually brought up and we'll have enough time to copy them down first one is the principle of dynamic equivalence what do we mean by that we'll define it very quick compare these two statements the bible is inerrant and the word and the sentence scriptures are without error now there isn't one word that is common in those two statements the bible is inerrant and the scriptures are without error do not have one word identical in the two sentences yet the two statements are identical true in terms of the truth that they are trying to convey that's what we mean by the principle of dynamic equivalence there is no static equivalence between them but in meaning they are totally equal why is this principle important because you will get some people pointing out to you so called errors where they will show you an old testament verse that is quoted in the new testament and some of the words are changed and so they say ah see the bible's got mistakes in it this is not what it says in the old testament and matthew says it differently in the new testament that's not a contradiction that's the principle of dynamic equivalence that uses different words sometimes to communicate exactly the same meaning god is not in the business of dictating the scriptures he worked dynamically through the people who wrote them within their culture within their area of expertise but to express the same truth so that's the principle you need to keep in mind the second principle that's important is that partial information can be absolutely true information provided it is not intended to mislead people a good example of this that might come up is the statements in the four gospels about what was the sign that pilate put above the cross matthew says this is jesus the king of the jews mark says the king of the jews luke says this is the king of the jews and john says jesus of nazareth the king of the jews well looks like a hopeless contradiction except when you put all of the words together it makes this complete sentence this is jesus of nazareth the king of the jews and every one of the four statements can come from that one text without changing any of the order so that matthew said this is jesus the king of the jews he just left out the words of nazareth mark says the king of the jews he left out the first part luke says this is the king of the jews he just left out the title jesus of nazareth and john picks it up after the this is and says jesus of nazareth the king of the jews each one of them are partial statements and they are absolutely accurate so that's the principle to keep in mind by the way another illustration of this principle is in the um, accounts of the resurrection where some of the gospel writers say the women saw one angel others say they saw two angels 
one man john wenham was a very um, brilliant scholar an englishman has a very humorous and simple way of solving that problem he said look that's no contradiction at all because there's a very simple truism whenever there's two of something there's always one of something <laughs> so there could very well have been two angels and somebody saw one of them it's be, it would be like me saying on the way out i ch- i talked to ed and ann my wife usually asks me who did you talk to tonight and i could have talked to them both and if i could say to her well, i talked to ed bori tonight later on my daughter might ask me who did you talk to i might say i talked to ed and ann both of them would be perfectly true statements if i had said though only ed was there and somebody else said ed and ann were both there that would be a real contradiction none of the gospels say there was only one angel all they say is some saw one and others saw two and if there is two remember there's always one then here's the third principle same words can sometimes have different meanings a very classic example here is the account of paul's conversion in acts chapter 9 you know he heard jesus speak to him I am Jesus whom you are persecuting Paul Saul why do you persecute me In Acts chapter 9 it says that the people who were with Saul heard a voice heard the voice In Acts chapter 22 when Paul is giving his testimony before Festus I think he says those who were with me didn't hear the voice Now that sounds like an unreconcilable contradiction Acts 9 says they heard the voice Acts 22 says they didn't hear the voice But it's only in English that you have the contradiction because in the greek language the verb has two different constructions in acts 9 the construction is used when it says they heard the sound but not the words in acts chapter 22 the construction is used for hearing the words so they're not contradictory accounts they are complementary accounts acts 9 tells us the people heard the sound of the voice acts 22 says it but they didn't hear the words and you and i know only too well many many times where we hear the sound of people speaking but we don't quite hear the words that they are saying so that's no contradiction at all it just happens to be the same word that has different meanings at different times then here's a fourth example imprecision is not an error in the book of kings there is a very famous uh, sentence that is used to prove an error in the bible i think it refers to a wash basin or a tank or a well of some sort and it says that the circumference of this well was three times the diameter well the mathematician jumps up and says that's wrong everybody knows that the ratio of the circumference to the diameter is pi pi is not 3 well what is pi you might say 3.14 but i have to say to you it's not 3.14 either it's 3.14159 you might say well actually that isn't true either pi is an indeterminate number so any statement you make about the ratio of the diameter to the circle has got to be imprecise and 3 is just about what a gardener might use if he's laying out a semicircular flower bed anything that's roughly 3 times the size of the diameter is going to look like a circle certainly for a well that's good enough so imprecision is not an error remember that i don't know what is so funny about that <laughs> okay here's the next principle language about the world is often in the bible written from an observer's viewpoint the critic is fond of taking a verse like and god said i will call them from the four corners of the earth they say aha see the bible teaches that the earth is flat and rectangular these are the actual charges that have been made against the scriptures through the centuries or they might read of jesus ascending and jesus descending and say see the bible teaches a three tier universe heaven up there and hell down there and earth in between that's why when yuri gagarin went up in 1957 to be the first cosmonaut he said oh there's no god up there i didn't see him that's not 
phenomenological language, but language from an observer's viewpoint. When we hear our newscasters on the television, the meteorologists, who get up and say that tonight the sun's going to set at 5.42 and rise tomorrow at 6.15, do we jump up and charge them with scientific error? Because, I mean, literally the sun doesn't set on our rise. But everybody knows that he's talking about it from an observer's viewpoint. And from an observer's viewpoint, the sun does set and the sun does rise. And the Bible uses it exactly in the same sense, from an observation view. Then comes the next principle. Some errors are obvious copying mistakes, and the context will tell you very clearly which one is true. A very famous example is one of the kings in the Old Testament. In one place it says he's 22 years old, and the other place it says he's 42 years old. It's not hard to figure out which one is right. First of all, it's a very easy copying mistake, just a single number. It's not hard to figure out which one is correct because if he was 42, he'd be two years older than his father. <laughs> and therefore, it's quite likely that he was only 22 in that case. <laughs> Same thing with Solomon's tables, you know, 4,000 tables and 40,000 tables. A simple zero at the end was the difference. So it's an obvious copying error, which has nothing to do with errors in the original. Then come some of the most interesting ones, though. Apparent contradiction, contradictory reports of the same seem infallible, but it's only because we don't have enough information. Let me give you a biblical example, and then I'll give you a very, very illuminating modern-day actual experience to illustrate the point. Where did Jesus preach the Sermon on the Mount? In Matthew, we read these words. Now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down, and his disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. So Matthew says he went up on a mountainside, the disciples came to him, and he taught them. Luke says he went down with them and stood on a level place. The large crowd of his disciples was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea came, looking at his disciples, he said, in the Sermon on the Mount. So which did he do? Did he come down from the mountain onto a level place? Or did he go up to a mountain and sit on a mountainside? Both can't be true. Even Jesus couldn't come up and down at the same time. Now that sounds like a very difficult passage to harmonize. Let me put the two of them together. As Daniel, Professor Daniels from India did in the Harmony of the Gospels. And when you put the facts from the separate accounts together, you see what actually happened. It is read in the sequence. He went down, he was with the disciples, was there, and a great number of people from all over Judea and Jerusalem who had come to hear him came to be healed of their diseases. Now when he saw the crowds, and I've switched to Matthew now, now when he saw the crowds, he went up on a mountain and sat down. His disciples came to him and he began to teach them. That's what happened. They came down first. A large crowd of people gathered together. He went up from there and the disciples came to him and he taught them. Luke happened to pick up this part and didn't introduce this. Matthew just started here. So there's no contradiction at all. And if you want to, if you think that that's fanciful, listen to this. Professor Kenneth Cancer from Trinity Seminary told the following true story. A good friend of his out east, on the east coast, died in an accident. Two of his good friends wrote letters to him telling him how it happened. Here was the report from the first one. He named the lady and she said she was standing at a street corner when she was hit by a bus. She didn't die right away, but died later on. That was account number one. Later on in the week, he got a letter from another friend of his. And he said, this is how she died. She was in a car. And she was hit by another car. She was thrown from the car and she died instantly. Now you tell me, how are you going to reconcile those two accounts? One says he was in a street corner, hit by a bus, didn't die right away and died later on. The other one says she was hit, he was in a car, she was hit by another car, thrown from the car and died instantly. 
But cancer had another problem. Both of his friends were reliable people as far as he knew. So he simply decided to believe both the ones. Because he said they are both reliable witnesses. I'll find out later on what happened. Believe it or not, you know what happened? She was standing at a street corner. She was hit by a bus and she didn't die. A good Samaritan came along, picked her up, was on his way to the hospital. When he was hit by a car, she was thrown from the car and she died instantly. That actually happened. One man gives you the first part of the story, the second person gives you the second part of the story, and we throw up our hands and say, contradiction. It was an apparent contradiction because they simply didn't have enough information. And it's important for us to keep those kinds of things in mind. Even more, if that can happen just within a continent, in a story given in the English language, to an incident that just happened a few days ago, is it any surprise that we are looking at stories that happened 2,000 years ago coming to us through a translation of several languages that happened halfway across the world that we should expect to find some lack of information? In the same category belong all of the so-called historical errors in the Bible. Let me give you three brief ones and then wrap it up quickly. In the theological schools of Germany, they taught, they taught that the Bible, uh, Moses could not have written the first five books of the Bible. Do you know why? Because they taught that writing was not around. It's, well, archaeology began to make some major advances in the 20th century, and they uncovered a massive eight-foot stone called the Hammurabi Stone, which had contained on it 232 paragraphs of all kinds of complicated legal and social and ethical codes. The only snag was, it was 400 years before Moses' time. So not only was there writing in Moses' time, there was writing 400 years before Moses' time, and subsequent archaeology has shown there was writing a thousand years before Moses' time. Yet until, the, yet until almost the year 1900, it was taught in the theological schools that Moses couldn't have written the first five books of the Bible. Then there was the argument about the Hittites, you know, one of the ites that gives us so much trouble when we read the Old Testament. The peculiar thing about the Hittites was no other literature anywhere in the world has ever mentioned the Hittites except the Bible. Well, guess what all the scholars said? See, the Bible is obviously unreliable. There's no such people called the Hittites. It's a book of mythology. Well, archaeology has not only uncovered all kinds of evidence about the existence of a people called the Hittites, every single fact about them is exactly what the Bible describes the Hittites as being. Come to the New Testament, it's exactly the same thing. Remember Luke's account of the Christmas story that Mary and Joseph had to go all the way back to Bethlehem to register because in the time when Quirinius was governor, uh, they had issued a census. Well, the criticism was on three points. There never was a census. Quirinius wasn't the governor at that time. And no, everybody didn't have to go back to their hometown to register. But once again, archaeology proved all three of them were right, the way Luke said it. In fact, Luke in Acts was maligned over and over and over again, dozens of times for his use of names, titles, places, events, the kinds of coins that were used. And in every one of those cases, they proved that he was wrong initially. And in every one of those cases, not most of them, in every one of those cases, archaeology has subsequently proved that Luke was right and the critics were wrong. Luke has been established as a first-rate historian. And by the way, these are not uh, intellectual lightweights who are doing all this work. These are directors of the British Museum, some of the greatest archaeologists the world has known, who are making these kinds of statements. Okay, how do we wrap this up? What about some of the errors, the apparent errors and contradictions that we are still left with after all of this? Because there are some. We don't have all the information. 
The skeptic says, well, I can't believe in the Bible. The only thing is he doesn't approach science the same way. You know, Saturn has rings around it. All kinds of rings. And recent exploratory trips from rockets that have come really close, and close in astronomy means thousands and thousands of miles, that's really close, have sent back some beautiful pictures of the rings of Saturn. And of course the scientists had all kinds of elaborate mathematical models to, dis to predict these things. But guess what some of the pictures showed? That some of these rings were braided. You know, and I have to laugh, only God would braid the rings of Saturn where nobody could even see them for a million years. <laughs> but the problem the scientists had was it was mathematically impossible, according to them, for the rings to be braided. So what did they do? Throw away their telescopes and fold up all the books on astronomy? No, no, no. They said precisely because we believe there has to be an explanation. Precisely because we have found explanations in the past when we've looked hard enough. We're going to build bigger telescopes. We're going to send out more explorations. We're going to look at more photographs. And we'll revise our mathematical models until we find an explanation. That's the kind of attitude that has resulted in most of the major breakthroughs of science. In fact, it is the person who is committed to the methodology of science who ought to do the same thing for the Bible. When we come up with some contradictions that are still not resolvable, we have the history to look back to. We say, what has happened throughout history? As men and women have continued to look for explanations because they believed the scriptures to be reliable, they kept finding them. And the number of contradictions have not been increasing with time, the number of contradictions have been decreasing with time. Therefore, we have very good, solid basis to believe. The big difference is, those who commit themselves to this word will keep looking and keep finding. Those who are committed in advance to sitting in judgment upon the scriptures don't look. Every one of these so-called contradictions has been resolved by conservative evangelical scholars, not by the liberal ones who sit in judgment upon the word. The two remaining questions, so what if they are without error? I can write a letter today that is without any error, and I can write a letter that doesn't contradict any known fact outside, but that doesn't make it the word of God. And then the fourth question about how can we believe a Bible that only human beings have put together. Those two questions are intimately related to the resurrection and so we'll pick them up next week when we are going to talk about the resurrection. But for today I trust you have enough basic material in your hands so you can at least give a confident response to someone who says, what about the errors in the Bible?